Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Program, which organized tonight's event, along with the great tech staff crew here at the Commonwealth Club. We're creating online programs for you so that you can enjoy something in the comfort of your home um, that is not a rerun of something that uh, you've already watched 10 times um, on TV. So tonight, it's my great pleasure, first of all, to introduce you, maybe if you haven't uh, seen us before, in San Francisco, the Commonwealth Club. Uh, You can visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org if you want to see what online programs we're on, backslash online. And you can see from our backlog uh, from prior things with all of our live audiences, we have a backlog of videos, uh, audio recordings, probably almost all the people that you find interesting uh, in terms of writing and in politics. So tonight we are having the great pleasure of someone that we were trying to get to come to San Francisco to speak for, I, we started talking about this uh, months and months and months ago, um, but because we're doing this uh, virtually and remotely, uh, we're picking her right up from her uh, living room in South Carolina, uh, Kitty Ferguson. Kitty Ferguson is the biographer of Stephen Hawking. She's written a couple of books on him. She's written on Tycho and Brahe. She's written on Pythagoras. Those are the biographical books she's written. In addition to that, she's written books about ideas, um, the fire in the equations, uh, lost science, and others, where she just goes into the basic ideas in science. And what's really remarkable about her is not only are these books written extremely clearly, but she was a professional musician for the first portion of her life, Uh, didn't study science, but she came from an interesting family that made that all possible. So I always was eager to talk to Kitty. Um, So I'm really happy that this remoteness has made it possible to have it much earlier than I thought we were going to be able to do it. So welcome, Kitty Ferguson. And thank you very much for joining us this way. Great. It's a real privilege. Thank you. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. So um, the interesting, the the entry into your life uh, between the, the, like, the line between music and science was that you were in Cambridge, England, um, and you met Stephen Hawking. It was like 1988 or so. Um, Mm -hmm. And not too long after that, you went back and and stopped being a professional musician and started writing books. And your first book was about black holes, explaining black holes. That's a really interesting place to start. It's like starting with postgraduate work um, instead of at the beginning. So uh, tell us a little bit how that came about. It's just fascinating to start. Well, that is an interesting story. I think uh, my daughter at that time was uh, eight years old, mm-hmm. and she decided to do a science fair project about black holes. Mm. Now, I had just I read a brief history of time, and I was reading uh, the Mister Thorne and Wheeler Gravitation, the big, huge tome that graduate students study about black holes and gravity. And uh, so we got those books out of the library, and we worked on them. Now this. This science fair was one where uh, it was all right for parents to help with the project, as long as the child could eventually be able to talk for 15 minutes with the judges on her own about <laughs> her project. And uh, so Caitlin uh, took this on, and we, we and uh, I just remember one thing very vividly. We were working on Hawking radiation and how particles escape from a black hole or don't escape from a black hole. And so we laid out a rope in our living room around in a big circle and we pretended we were particle pairs, a, part of, a pair of particles. And um, 
<laughs> one of them would have to have negative energy and one positive energy. And she always wanted to be the one with the negative energy because that meant she got to jump into the black hole. <laughs> While I got to escape to infinity, which was the kitchen. That was how we did it. And so, you know, we visualized it like that. Um, it was a brilliant project, and she won um, a prize for it. Huh. And my husband said, Kitty, um, I think you could just take that project, which is one of those three part things, you know, three panels. Uh-huh. He said, you could take that, and, and uh, you and Caitlin could write a young adult book about black holes. He said a children's book, actually, about right. black holes. He was only eight years old. And um, I said, I don't want to do that. I'm finally getting back to the piano. Right. And he said, well, if you won't do it, maybe I'll do it. And I said, no, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> That's how it started. <laughs> and then I did begin, uh, uh, we went beyond the projects. And Caitlin dropped out pretty soon. She wasn't that interested in continuing with it. But she she has now a PhD from Harvard in uh, microbiology. But this is a different story. So, I mean, she didn't quit exactly, but she quit on the <laughs> And uh, so, anyway. I decided to um, to write a book for children. As it turned out, the publishers didn't know it's not really for children, it's more for young adults. So that's how it turned out. But in doing that, and I, as I always said, I don't just go to my local physics teacher to ask my questions. I went to John Wheeler mm-hmm. at Princeton and asked him. And marvelous stories I could tell about him. But uh, the... Uh, but then we were in Cambridge because my husband, as an academic, he had a sabbatical and we were in Cambridge, uh-huh. England. And uh, I began talking with some of Stephen Hawking's students about uh-huh. like his graduate students. And they said, you know, you should really talk to Stephen, you know, talk uh-huh. to Stephen. So, I mean, it was a long, it was a lot of work to get to talk to Stephen. I had to find a way around his secretary and all of this. But I did finally <laughs> go in and speak with him one evening. And it was very interesting because... Most of the time, if you go into visit Stephen Hawking, somebody gives you a little idea ahead of time what it's going to be like if you've never met him. For instance, you don't sit across, or you just didn't now, I mean, he's no longer with us. We didn't sit across the desk from him. You sat beside him so that you could see his screen where his he was doing his communication, you know, making the, mm-hmm. the, his words, choosing his words. I didn't know that, but it was obvious how to do that. The other thing was that if he's, um, you'll see the words going down to a sentence at the bottom of his computer screen. And pretty soon you know where he's going, you know what he's going to say. Mm-hmm. But you don't interrupt him. You let him finish. You always let him finish what he was going to say. But then you didn't have to wait for him to activate the, the speech synthesizer. It, once you saw the sentence there, you could go ahead with the asking questions. But uh, that was interesting. But what happened that evening was that I read him a couple of passages from the book I was writing at that time about black holes. Mm-hmm. And as I read those passages there in that otherwise completely silent room, they sounded so deadly dull. <laughs> and I stopped and I said, I said, Professor Hawking, I am so sorry that this sounds so dull. And he said, well, it has to be fun. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, my editor wants tells me this should be a serious science book, not you know, don't get too flippant about it or anything like that. I said, I, what can I tell him to convince him it should be fun? Uh-huh. And Stephen said, after all, he, you know, he did it with his, his computer. He said, tell him I said so. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> that did it. <laughs> that, that is more 
just that's more than just kind of a charming anecdote because it has to be fun. It's just his motivation for all his work, all his desire to to convey this fun to everybody, not yeah. just not just the scientists, but to what he calls ordinary people, you and me. You know, right. he wants us to join that adventure. He wanted that. And that was just a huge and he always said himself, it's not fear to call this work. You know, he loved doing it. And he he wanted to convey that love. And that was one of the huge things that I remember about him is uh-huh. that desire and how he worked on that. Sometimes he didn't succeed too well in bringing it down to ordinary people's level, but he uh, Yeah. Well but he yeah, yes. It's a rather hard thing to but bring I was, down. <laughs> I was very I was very pleased that my first uh, book about him though got reviewed by the London Taxi Times. Uh-huh. And the reviewer for the London Taxi Times said, Kitty Ferguson's book about Stephen Hawking is the book that tells us what the bloody hell a brief history of time was all about. <laughs> for, those, for those who didn't make it past chapter two. That was the review. And I, I treasure that review. <laughs> Well, you, no. knew, you knew him for a long time, and you've, uh, you, you wrote uh, the final version of his biography again after he passed away. Um, yeah, one so. of the things that's interesting is that his idea about black holes shifted over time um, from, from uh, the early, his earlier thoughts and then later thoughts and so on and so forth. So he evolved. And, and a lot of times people say scientists have all their ideas when they're in their mid-20s. But obviously, he kept thinking and changing his ideas all the way to the end of his life. And he did live a long time, especially under the physical circumstances he lived under. Yes, well, that was one of the marvelous things about him was the way he would pull the rug out from under his own feet. And he certainly did that many times in his science. Yeah. And I was reminded of that because I was looking back at my book about Johannes Kepler. Mm-hmm. And Kepler said about himself, I am armed with incredulity. Mm-hmm. Not about my own previous discoveries, about everything anybody has ever assumed or discovered, armed with incredulity. Yeah. Now, that was Stephen Hawking. He was armed with incredulity about his own previous work. Uh-huh. And he was always out there. I mean, the very last month of his life, he was uh, almost overturning one of the things he had mm-hmm. really come to a firm conclusion about earlier. That was just the way he did. Um, it's a marvelous example. It's, it's the way science should work mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes doesn't. But that was mentioned by several people at his, um, the interment of his, uh, interment of his ashes at uh, Westminster Abbey, mm-hmm. that ability to change his mind, willingness to change his mind. And uh, it's a great lesson, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, uh, do you have any ideas? I mean, I know that it's kind of interesting because black holes have this name, black holes, but they're not really black holes. And so they're, they're misnomer. But the original idea was that it swallowed everything around them and therefore would, would be black. But he developed the ideas that, no, there's, it must be spinning off other things. It doesn't get everything in there. And you were talking about that from when your, your daughter did it. There, there's a period right. particle. One goes in, one goes out. So that's how we can kind of see them. And, and they have... They have, were not seen at all at the time that you were talking about, about it with him in the 80s. When the first time that they, they there, there's something that they could see in the universe uh, just recently, but they did have visual evidence for black holes starting about 10 or 15 years ago or so, right? That's very recent. 
really, the actual evidence for them, besides theoretical evidence. Yeah. Uh, the theories of black holes are one of those really almost unique examples in science of something that was understood and studied and believed in long before anybody saw one, long right. before there was any observation of one. It's a very interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting thing the way that it's worked. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing, we know. Yeah. And, um, and um, one of the most interesting things also about Hawking radiation, that's what we were talking about right. here, was that when Stevens first, this was in the 70s, early 70s, he had said, you know, nothing can come out of a black hole, nothing can escape past the event horizon. The event horizon, which is the border of the black hole, can never grow smaller. The area of it can't grow smaller. Mm-hmm. And he fought that change of mind. He really thought it. He didn't want to change his mind. Yeah. And if you look at the paper that he wrote about that, he comes at it one way, he comes at it another way, and he comes to the same conclusion, so he tries it another way. It's really a brilliant thing how hard he tried to avoid that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then faced his colleagues who wouldn't believe it either, told him it was rubbish. It was rubbish. <laughs> but eventually, that's now considered his his uh, most significant contribution besides Hawking radiation. So well, that's, it's uh, an interesting yeah. part about about our scientists. Uh, they their attitude towards their beliefs is not that much different from uh, religious uh, believers in terms of once you once you have a set of assumptions and you live your life in, uh, based on it in religion, but if you live your career on it in science. You don't want to see those assumptions go away because you've built it up, unless you just totally have the scientific attitude, which is, show me something that persuades me that I'm wrong. You know, like you said, in, total incredulity. Right. Uh, but there are very few yeah. that have have that because it's a kind of uh, a place of sand to stand on instead of a, a hard rock. You know, but oh, that's but, true. but but yeah. it works. It funny. Yeah. Um, I, who was it? Now I wish I remember who wrote that saying that scientists can survive being treated as uh, arrogant or closed-minded or uh, all kinds of things. The one thing that science can't stand is being told that you are always right. And that's, <laughs> uh, that is absolutely death to science. And uh, I think that's, and so Stephen Hawking has not done that. No. <laughs> so. And and it's, it's interesting that that, that, perfectionism that being you know saying that you're always right ruins every single career it, it ruins uh, doctors oh. it ruins professors it ruins uh, lawyers i mean i i thought you know in new york that the best lawyers admitted they were wrong about two percent of the time if they if yeah. they never admitted that they were wrong then then they were were not so good and if, and if they admitted they were wrong 10 percent of the time they weren't good enough but 2%, yeah. that was about right. You know, that you, you have to, it, you know, whatever your specialty is. And, and uh, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, people who do investments think it's wonderful that doctors all think they know everything because then they can get them to invest in, in, in what they want. And they're, they're perfect in their field, right. but they don't know anything about this other field. So, uh, but, so it's, it's, it's interesting. There's so few people that adopt that scientific attitude, which we'll get to later when we talk about Pythagoras, because that's sort of the start of... Uh, the buildup of enthusiasm for that attitude. So let's step back a second off of uh, Stephen Hawking. Y- you were uh, a mother, a young mother, and so on, and, but you had been a professional musician for 10 or 15 years already at that point, right? Um, when when well, you wrote the book Black Holes and met Stephen Hawking. 
That's right. I, I went to the Juilliard School, and I was a voice major. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But one of the things that I learned how to do at Juilliard, in addition to how to sing, I learned how to conduct because I mm. there was a little chorus that sang for all the conducting lessons that you know involved a chorus. And you got paid a little bit to sing in this chorus. It was a good way to make a little money. Uh-huh. So I sang. Through so many conducting lessons, <laughs> a lot. So after um, after I graduated, and I did do some wonderful things. I mean, I sometimes when I think back at that time, and I was singing in um, some of the large, some of the professional choruses in New York, and the, and the chorus, you know, you really rather be singing solo. But my goodness, I sang under the baton of Stravinsky. Mm-hmm. And Bernstein and Ozawa and uh, Kodai, all these people. I mean, I think back now, I didn't really appreciate that as much as I should have. <laughs> but one thing I did, it was great fun. Um, I, it was a New York City ballet. Uh, in uh, Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream, there's a part for a chorus. Uh, and I was, I was the soloist in that. Well, you sing it from the orchestra pitch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was the first fairy, and uh, you're kind of, and it, it was brilliant. I loved doing that. Um, Did you dance? And other things that I, no, you don't dance. Oh, just, just sing. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering how, how many talents do you have? How many have I appeared with the New York City Ballet? But I didn't think that was But I did have, but then, anyway, then uh, this is when we were living in New York. Then when our our children, our two boys, or uh, I guess five and two years old, we decided we wanted them to have more of a childhood like the one my husband and I had had. We grew up in Texas and San Antonio. Mm-hmm. So we moved out to uh, western New Jersey, really out into the country there, mm-hmm. and uh, raised them there. And there I began directing church choirs, mm-hmm. something that I had, was pretty well prepared to do, but I never really tried to do. And enjoyed that very much. And one of my great pride and joys for those years was researching in great detail at the, in the library in, in the Americana collection in New York City, all the music that was written about the time of the American Revolution. And this was the time when we were celebrating the bicentennial. Right. And we gave a series of concerts all in costume, all in candlelight, and uh, of that music, which is some magnificent music. Some of it is really propaganda music for the revolution, right. but it's beautiful, beautiful music. <laughs> and I, so that was one of my really big achievements in my life. I think that was. So you you and you, love, you created that for the bicentennial, and and, and yes, when it was right. all done, you'd worked on it for about a year or so. When it was all done, what'd your son say? You, you, what was that? Your son? What did your son say to you? Uh, you oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, mom, thank goodness. He was only, what, five or six years old. And he said, thank goodness that's over for another 200 years. They <laughs> 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 felt a little neglected. It was an awful lot of work. <laughs> but I think that one of the interesting things was, and you think so many people say, you know, how can you have gone to science after that? Mm-hmm. The thing was that I was, I did grow up in a family. Mm-hmm. My father was a musician. He was a, um, a high school band director and a church choir director, but a wonderful musician. I shouldn't say but a wonderful musician and a wonderful musician. Mm-hmm. He also loved mathematics. And um, he loved teaching us kids. And he'd always say, he would read things, and then he'd say, now I have to explain it to you. So he'd be at the dinner table, we'd move the salt and pepper shaker around, this is the solar system, this is Mars, Venus, and so on, you know, and all this. He would go through this. <laughs> 
And he learned so much like that. And uh, well, some things were complicated in that. But what he said was, if I can't explain it to you little guys, I don't really know it. Uh. And uh, I've heard that Richard Feynman mm-hmm. told the student yep. that at some point, if you can't explain this to, you know, maybe not children, but almost, you don't really know it. And that was my father's attitude. And he just made it such fun. You know, it was all fun. So that I never thought of science as something that other people did or only smarter people did or you had to do in school. It was just something you did for fun. And uh, that's, I think, what gave me the nerve to go on into it later on. And like Stephen Hawking says, it's fun. So yeah, It's fun. Exactly. Um, it's a great event. So uh, you, you tell a story in Measuring the Universe which is, is, is quite a, a move from, from what you did measure. But you said that as a child, uh, your father taught you how to measure a windmill, right, by measuring the shadow, I think? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He took yeah. us out. He said we were going to measure the height of the windmill. It was on my grandparents' farm, and we went out there. And he asked, you know, it was my brother. My brother was three years younger than I. I think I was about nine years old. Uh-huh. And we began to think about, he wanted to know our ideas about how we do it. And so, well, you're going to climb it, Dad, I guess, and, you know, measure it. Or maybe we'll throw something over the top. And my brother thought of himself as still is a very fine mathematician. <laughs> Perhaps we could throw something over the top and measure the arc that it follows as it goes through the air. <laughs> and my, grandpa, my, father, my father would always say, no matter what the idea, good thinking, good thinking. <laughs> And then he showed us how to do it by measuring the shadow of the windmill and the shadow of a yardstick mm-hmm. and the ratios between those. And, and uh, it was pretty good math. You know, we had to yeah. figure that out. But still, it was so marvelously simple. It was just, isn't that very Pythagorean, you know, something uh, yeah. so marvelous. So Pythagorean, yeah. I was just thinking, too, because uh, we'll get back to Pythagoras at the end. But um, the idea that the sun might be a sphere and that the earth might be a sphere came from shadows and, and, and so on right. shadows on the earth at a different time. There, there, almost all the information that you see tells you one thing, but there's a couple pieces yeah. of information that tell you something else, you know, and then, yeah. and then you got to put the whole picture together. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, that whole story of the first measurement of the circumference of the earth, Eratosthenes and his measuring the shadow down into the well and uh, the way he did that. And that was what, you know, Third century BC. I remember right yeah, about that. Yeah. I'm not sure, but um, it's a great story. It's true. You know, he did yeah. it that way. And again, so simple. So simple. So simple. So. And, uh, people don't realize that I, you know they, they were able at that time, and not at the time of Pythagoras, but afterwards in the next couple of generations or, or, or a couple of centuries, they figured out that the diameter of the, I mean, the circumference of the Earth was pretty close to twenty five thousand miles. So they they okay. came, they came fairly close, not not precise like yeah. we do now, but they were pretty close. Yeah. So yeah. Um, well, that, that uh, yeah, the book measuring the universe, you know, mm-hmm. shows the latter of it. You have to know that before you can figure out the distance to the sun, or we have to or the moon. Even yeah. you have to know that before you can get the next step. It's a ladder, and yeah. sometimes it fails, moving pops. But uh, it, it's very interesting how one thing builds on another, and uh, that's a great story. Yeah. So lost in science, uh, I mean lost science, mm-hmm. lost science, <laughs> lost in space, yeah, lost. in my mind, there's lost in science, that's a different thing, <laughs> but lost science, um, what, what uh, pieces of science do you talk about that, that we've lost, pieces, pieces that got lost? You know, um, 
Yes, I found that a rather frustrating book to write because I couldn't, although I asked an awful lot of people among my friends, scientific friends over at Cambridge University in England, um, it's so hard to find something that's really lost Mm -hmm. because you'll think you've found something and then you take it to somebody more or less in that field. Oh, no, everybody knows that. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) But... Uh, I guess one um, of my, I guess my favorite story in there, really, I don't know if it's the most lost, is Verbeest, the Jesuit uh, astronomer who went to uh, to China in the 1600s uh-huh. and took, actually took Tychonic, uh, Tycho's Tycho Drive, Tychonic, uh, Tychonic uh-huh. astronomy with him. As a matter of fact, the only true replicas of, of Tycho Brahe's magnificent instruments uh-huh. You know, this was before the telescope. I mean, his magnificent, magnificent instruments that exist in the world today are in Beijing. Uh-huh. And they were the ones that the emperor made at, at Verbeest's direction. And wow. uh, there they are. Uh, but uh, uh, that's such a marvelous story. Because if you've read um, Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, yeah. where the guy had to uh, save his life by predicting the eclipse. Right. And... Beast saved his life and several other people by able to being able to measure where a shadow was going to fall at a certain hour. Well, everybody held their breath. You know, it was like an emperor <laughs> in the Hobbiturn doll. Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> and then he came up with it. And three times he had to do this and make that work. And uh, he was being persecuted just, for his religion, and he used science to save himself. Um, why, why was he? Why was his life at risk? He's a Jesuit priest. I, I'm just guessing. Not, I don't think it was because of that. It was just the intrigue of the court there, uh, yeah. and his enemies, and uh, and there were enemies of the Jesuits, and they were very popular at sometimes and not at others. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact no, circumstance. That I even gave a lecture on that once too, and I should remember it. But anyway, <laughs> it's a good story. And it, and it came out happily then. And that, but the way I got into that story was that I read that uh, Verbeest had invented the first automobile. Mm-hmm. Now this was uh, a little tiny, not so big, uh, you know, toy size that he did invent. It ran, ran on steam, and he invented it for the emperor of, of uh, China. And it was after this other triumph, and he was very close to the emperor. But he invented this little thing. It had a rudder on it, so it could guide it, so it wouldn't run out of the room. And uh, there were, you read stories, oh, Beast invented the first automobile in the Emperor of China, rode through the streets of Beijing. No, he didn't. It was just a <laughs> tiny little thing, <laughs> but it was remarkable. And uh, it, uh, and then he invented a little boat, too, that would uh, run that same way. I don't know exactly, but they were both steam-driven mm-hmm. and um, very br- and brilliant. So that's how I got into that and found wow. my way then into the other story and all that other stuff. And uh, that one... Um, what else? Um, the, the, the measurements of the transit of Venus, that mm-hmm. he had to go all the way across Mexico and lost his life over there in Baja, Mexico, uh-huh. California. That's a good story. Um, How about in fi- <laughs> Fire in the Equation? Fire in the Equation. That's a, so, uh, I, I know that you're on the Board of Advisors for uh, the Templeton uh, organization. About I'm Not anymore. I was. Oh, I was you were. Okay. Time. Um, but but uh, the Fire in the Equations book had ideas in it that, that uh, Sir John Templeton uh, got ex- ex- interested in and asked you. So what, what, what were the ideas that really yeah. caught his attention? I have no idea, really. I don't oh, know what okay. caught his attention. <laughs> but I wrote, I wrote that book 
from an agnostic point of view. I never gave way to whether which whether I believed in God or not. And yeah. I didn't know sure writing it whether I succeeded in that. In but I, the re, some of the letters I got about it, I thought, yes, I really did succeed in hiding because I get some letters that would say, yeah, "How can you be such a shameless apologist for religion?" And the next letter would say, "If you would only follow Jesus Christ, all these problems in your life would be solved." I thought, oh, they don't know. <laughs> they come down. <laughs> no, that was. And I've made a point of when I would write about something, I would I would always like for instance Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, when I wrote about his ideas, I didn't just write about them, I actually ran my what I'd written by him to right. make sure that I presented that correctly, the way he wanted it and wasn't distorting his views. I did that with everybody that I wrote about. Well, everybody who's still alive, not right. write about them. But uh, the book uh, really and it's not a highly academic book, although it includes a lot of theology, a lot of a lot of science, um, because I really just wanted to go right to the horse's mouth, so to speak. What does science really say? Not what do people think science is, but what does it really say? Right. And the same thing about in religion, too. What's not the theologians, but what do people really believe? And one advantage I had was that um, one of the when I was directing choirs. And when I was doing that kind of work, I was in all, I was in the Episcopal Church, I was in the Methodist Church, I was in the Presbyterian Church, I was in the I did uh, Passover up in the Catskill to the Pentecostal Church. Uh-huh. I knew the, the wide range of what people actually believe, and yeah. that's in that book. And it was an exploration for me to find out whether there was a conflict. Yeah, that's what it was all about. And I wasn't didn't really know as I was writing it. Whether or not I would find a conflict, and uh, that's um, personal invention. Yeah, invention. Following your father's advice that you have to get it uh, clear enough in your own head so you can explain it to somebody else to know what you think, sort of. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't didn't, didn't preach it either way. I just left it. And you decide. You know. (laughs) You decide. So um, let's go to the Tiho uh, and, and Brahe book. It's a partnership that 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 uh, you wrote about, and how how they moved Copernicus's idea. But but it's an odd odd partnership. So it's a, in, in terms of the, the two different yeah. characters, yeah. I thought a dysfunctional collaboration. Tycho <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brahe was an aristocrat, a Danish, and. Um, Mm, at least a generation older than Kepler. Mm-hmm. Kepler was a school teacher, wanted to be a clergyman, but became a school teacher instead in Graz in Austria. And uh, uh, just, so Kepler was telling most of the craziest things. I remember uh, hearing, uh, because Kepler wrote his book Mysterio when he was fairly young. Mm-hmm. And Owen Gingrich at, the, at Harvard, the astronomer there, has said, seldom in the history of science has such a wrong book been so seminal in directing the future of science. <laughs> <laughs> <It's a> wrong book. <laughs> what Kepler was trying to do was very Pythagorean of him because he was looking for patterns. He was looking for, you know, yeah. patterns of organization. Uh, he, what he did in his book was to try to fit, he was trying to figure out what separated the orbits of the planets and what made them orbit as they do. Fitting the five platonic solids yeah. between those orbits, and then seeing, and actually didn't work too badly. <laughs> but, anyway, but to 
the way Kepler, you know, people at that time, astronomers were trying to figure out, trying to find ways to uh, predict where the planets would be, you know, right. their positions at various times. Um, and, you know, Kepler's predecessors there, although they didn't think Copernicus really was right about the sun being the center, they loved Copernicus's mathematics because it gave them better predict, better predictions. Yeah, and they accept very much like. So, but here came Kepler, and he was not interested in just where the planets were. He wanted to find out what was really going on up there among these big bodies in the sky. And he didn't just want to know what was going on; he wanted to find out why. He wanted the physical explanations. Now, he didn't discover the physical explanations. Mm-hmm. But in trying to find them, he came up with his three laws of planetary motion that we still, you know, know they're correct. And uh, he uh, and into uh, the explanations, we had to wait for Newton three quarters right. of a century later. But it was in that search, and it was really Kepler who kind of propelled science forward into an era where physical explanations were essential, mm-hmm. and they weren't before that. That was one of Kepler's contributions. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kepler just Kepler had that Pythagorean imagination, that desire for the harmony and things fitting together beautifully, mm-hmm. along with his desire to look at the observations to find out, does it work? Yeah. Plus, his, he was just a fantastic mathematician. You put those three things together, and, and he gave us the future of science, really. I mean, that's, that's oh. how it happened. And so they stand... Wonderful. And Tico's, Tico's role in this uh, was he collected the information. He, Tico had already, uh, before he ever met Kepler, mm-hmm. um, was had measured, um, spent years uh, observing Mars. Mm-hmm. That was what he was doing. It was Tico's Mars observation that Kepler wanted to see mm-hmm. in order to fund his uh, platonic solids and all that. Um, so he. Um, he went to, uh, at this time, uh, Tycho Brahe had moved to near Prague, to the Natki Castle there. He had to leave Denmark under kind of unfortunate circumstances. He was there and working as the imperial uh, mathematician for the Holy Roman Empire under Rudolf II. And uh, so Kepler went there, um, but Tycho was very suspicious of Kepler because he thought Kepler was trying to steal his his observations, trying to support um, a uh, person they called Ursus, uh, Nicholas Baer, who had written, who had plagiarized Tico, and he thought Kepler was on his side. And <laughs> Tico was subtle. Tico wouldn't let Kepler anywhere near those observations. Okay, this was terribly frustrating. There he was, but he couldn't get to them. And this went on and on. It was a kind of a sad story. Finally, uh, just shortly before Tico's death, you know, within days almost, he decided to trust um Kepler with those observations, and they both went to Rudolf, the Emperor Rudolf II, mm. and proposed that together they put together something called the Rudolphine Tables, which would be based on those observations. Mm-hmm. And for that, um, Tycho had to allow Kepler into the whole thing. And then it was Kepler who, on Tycho's death, then inherited it all. It all fell into his hand at yeah. that point. Except for the Bride family trying to take it away all the time. You know, it's always difficult, but that's that's when Kepler was finally able to get his hands met after Tycho's death. Um, it, it's really a fascinating story. Um, yeah, it went on for it. years, right? I mean, it took him years and years yes. to, to extract that information. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And 
Chopper didn't have an easy life. I mean, he, what he had, Wikipedia says he had 11 children. I'm pretty sure he had 13. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think he had 13 children and uh, only five of them lived to adulthood. Oh. I mean, it was a difficult time to be alive. Yeah. Uh, Kessler wasn't able to get a job at any of the Lutheran universities, as brilliant as he was, and he was the imperial mathematician. Right. He couldn't get a job because he had said at one point that a Catholic also was a child of God. You know, I'm. <laughs> yes, but but not an employable one. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Catholic was not a Catholic. He was a Protestant, but he was the most exuberantly religious man. Exuberantly religious. And you know, he said, My God, I'm thinking my thoughts after thee. I love that, that <laughs> line. And another point where he, he talks about God as though. God is a colleague, and he says, Here, let's see, heretofore, we have not noticed such an ungeometrical conception in his other work. <laughs> he was saying that about God. <laughs> he finally found it. You know, he was looking for the geometry. There he was the Pythagorean again. Yeah, yeah. But, it's, it's, it's fascinating. We were talking about it earlier how you get uh, an idea in your head, um, and then you want reality to conform to the idea. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's the ancient uh, Greek idea. Do you pursue truth or do you pursue beauty? Um, and it's, a, it's a, an interesting observation because it's, it's hubris, really, to think that your own imagination can come up with some more beautiful explanation than trying to figure out what's really there. Um, yeah, and, and, and I think it's, it's both hubris about your imagination, but also fear that what's really there isn't so pretty for us. We'll find out something we really don't want to know uh, about our lives. But we've gotten so used to uh, getting to be a smaller and smaller part of the universe that at this point it doesn't seem like there should be much fear left for what's out there because it's not, you know, you'd think so, but there's still plenty, right? (laughs) Now, Stephen, let's go back to Stephen Hawking for a little while. Uh, You know, as I said, when was the last time that you you talked to him? Uh, Did you you get to see him again a couple of times or not? I wish I had talked with him more closely before his death. No, I went. I went in. I um, he and his publisher that I'm asking to come in and help him make his book uh, "Universe in a Nutshell." That was one of his books. Uh-huh. Help him make it simpler. Help him make it a little simpler. And right. uh, so we worked for a while by email, and then I spent a couple of weeks over in Cambridge and went in every day. And we would up on his screen. He had his two computers up there, one with his communication system and the other with the manuscript of his book. And that was interesting because I would say, Stephen, I think that sentence, and I really, I think, you know, you, we've got to find a way to say that simpler. Mm-hmm. And then he would click with his little thing and, and say, seems perfectly clear to me. <laughs> <laughs> but then I thought, oh, What's going to happen? But I looked over at him and I thought he, he was kidding me. He was giving me this look. <laughs> so he, he worked very hard to make that simpler. I don't know, reading that book, whether we really succeeded in making it simpler, but we really tried. Yeah. Tried very hard on that. But um, so whenever I was going to write a new revision of my book about him, mm. I would go in and talk with him about what should be in it and what shouldn't be in it. Do you want me to mention this or not? Or, you know, and he would usually. Uh, mentioned several scientific things that should be in it. And then he would usually send me to one of his 
associates whose specialty that was for, because at the time that I was dealing with him, he was really working on other people's specialties a little more. Right. Um, he was, um, and uh, but so I would go in and work, and then I'd bring it back to him, and we'd talk about it. And I'd also go in whenever you, you just don't go in and chew the fat with Stephen Hawking. I mean, yeah. I guess some people do, but I was like, he doesn't need that from me, you know. Right. I don't want to take his time. I probably didn't go in as much as I might have, but I did like to go in when there was something funny to tell him. And I remember going in once and telling him uh, that, uh, you know, on uh, Amazon, how I would say uh, people who bought this book also bought right. this one. You know, that okay. And they said Kid, uh, people who bought Kitty Ferguson's book, Stephen Hawking, His Life and Work, also bought Warfare in Afghanistan from Alexander the Great to the Taliban. <laughs> and so I told <laughs> he thought that was so funny. So, <laughs> <laughs> Why? We don't know, right? <laughs> Why? <laughs> the, the publisher of that book was paying for that. Uh, that, that, that uh, Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> totally unrelated. Very, very eclectic readers, are <laughs> But he loved it. He, he would always get a kick out of stuff like that, you know. So I liked to. Yeah, I like to tell him funny things. Well, I, if you could tell us a little bit about how Stephen managed. First, he had, he had a lot of grad students, I, I assume, uh, that worked with him and a lot of other associates and other people that worked with him on these things. And here he was every year, probably a little bit more disabled, a little bit harder to, to, to convey what he's thinking, although he had a lot of good equipment. But it must have been exhausting physically for him in that situation, well, yeah. do, you, do you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's one of the more impressive things about his output and his effect, etc. Is is that he was able to work against this crippling disease uh, and and stay relevant, stay thinking all the way into his seventies. is amazing. Yeah. Even when he wasn't feeling well, he insisted on what he called going into work, going to the office. But what he usually had, um, uh, he had four graduate students, mm-hmm. and only four, and they they came. There would be one that was about to finish. When that one finished, a new one came in. So they were yeah. spaced out for about four years. And um, the one way he worked with them is one of them would come in. They were either working on one of his ideas or one of their own. And they would present him with an equation or a solution. Mm-hmm. And they would say, is that right or wrong? And mm. Is that right? And he could just answer that with a, just one movement, really. You know? Right. And if it was wrong, they had to be prepared to say, is it wrong for this reason mm-hmm. for a reason? And then he had to answer that. Or is it wrong for this reason? They couldn't just say, why is it wrong? Yeah. They had to think themselves of the reasons why it might be wrong and present him with those. And that, that's one of the ways. And what a marvelous way to teach. Yes, I'm yes, exactly. Something like that. Um, he did that. Um, he also had a way, his colleagues like to say that, you know, you sat here, maybe this this is people, you know, colleagues, his professors, friends, and so on. They'd be there talking about something, and he wouldn't hear very much from Stephen. So all of a sudden, he would break in and have something to say. And I think it was Kip Thorne, his colleague out in California, who said that when Stephen did that, it had a way of turning the whole conversation around. It was a huge, almost a huge contribution. He didn't mm-hmm. break in too often, but that's the way he did it. And uh, it was always, uh, they always thought, you know, he just sits there a lot of the time, but then he comes in just at the right moment with 
the mm-hmm. question or the comments and the turning point, whatever it would be. So that's kind of the way he worked with his colleagues. Yeah. Also, one of the interesting things that I was able to do when I wrote my final revision of my book, of my, my final edition after he died, was have some long talks with the people at Intel who had worked with him on his communication system for years and years, mm-hmm. a long time. Now, one of the things that I had not known before was that he, at the very start, made it a condition with them that he wouldn't work on it at all with them or use their services unless they made it all open source so that uh-huh. other people could use it. Huh. They weren't going to make a fortune of Stephen Hawking. And, uh, but their comments about him, how you know, that he didn't really realize uh, that the smallest change in his system, even a change, just a tiny change in the timing it took from the signal that he would give with his with his eyelid, finally, he was just with his cheek muscle, and the time the words, he chose the word on the screen. If that timing changed just a little bit, it threw him completely. Yeah. And um, the woman who was working with him said, you know, you have to think, if the timing changed in your own uh, speech between the moment you tried to say the word and the moment it came out, it would throw you like that. Oh, right. You know? right. And this was you know, he was dealing with. And um, but they <laughs> said he was very risk averse. <laughs> he didn't like to take chances. He didn't like change. Yes. He kind of liked what he had. He didn't like to take chances. But they, they struggled. They were still struggling with it at the time he died to keep him communicating, keep him able to right. be in touch. Well, it's uh, tough for them, too, because I'm sure they were interested in continually improving uh, what they were working on with him. And that's that was not their only interest, but that was a big part of their interest. And he was resistant to change. I mean, if you if you have a new software program, a medical software program or something like that, then there's a couple of changes. Everybody yells and screams until they get used to it, because who who wants to keep learning this all the time? But you're you're talking about these subtle changes in how he communicates. It's very, very it must must have been really irritating. (laughs) <laughs> he was never happy. He was never happy with his speech prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, every, he would always go back and write it again. You know, write it his own way. And they yeah. told a story about how they were they were at a banquet out in with Intel at people uh, out in California, I guess it was. And and uh, this was shortly after they had worked on him with a speech prediction. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, he would come out with some non sequitur that had nothing to do with the conversation that was going on at the top of his voice. Mm-hmm. And um, this was his joke. I mean, he, just, <laughs> his, he set his speech prediction. Go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he loved it. <laughs> so no, that that was one of the nice things about writing that final edition. Also, I was able to talk with um, one of a friend of his, Robert Donaldson, who had, they had been graduate students together, and they had lived together in the same housing when they were both graduate students at Cambridge. And this fellow. He was the best man at both of Hawking's weddings and knew him so well, knew his mother, and had the most marvelous stories to tell. Mm-hmm. And I also spoke with um, a couple of his carers who um, had worked with Stephen for so long and, and uh, you know, their experiences with him. Yeah. I love the, the one who said, well, when I first met him, no, I wasn't shocked. He wasn't quite as bad off as I thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who's been working with before? <laughs> <But> <laughs> And uh, things like that. It really, I think, has added so much to that uh, to that final edition. And may I just say, could I just say right now that yeah. if anybody who wants that, it's called 
Stephen Hawking, A Life Well Lived. Now, the older one is called His Life and With His Stephen Hawking, A Life Well Lived. It has the same cover except for that. But it's not available in America. It's only available in England. From You can get it from Amazon UK. It's available in China. It's available in uh, India. It's Mm -hmm. available in Russia. Mm -hmm. But it's not available here. And I hope it will be. I hope eventually it will be. But right now it's not. Yeah. But it is just going to be a biography and it ought to be out there. So we'll see what happens. Well, at least you can get it. You can still get it. Um, But but it it should should be made more easily uh, available. If you don't look it up yeah, if you don't look it up under that title, Stephen Stephen Hawking, A Life Well Lived, mm-hmm. that, that's how you find it. So, uh, yeah. I hope some people will look for it. So, um, I just thought of a pop, uh, you know, culture question. Did you see the movie about uh, Stephen Hawking that Eddie R- Raymond uh, played him? Yes, yes, did you I, think yes, it was a good yes, movie? Do you think it, it conveyed uh, yes. something about I him? Did. Yes, interesting, because Stephen's own reaction to that was, was largely true. <laughs> <laughs> largely true. <laughs> and uh, I think that's, that's right. I think my reaction was it was sort of a feel-good movie. It right. was a lovely movie. But it, their lives doing during that time was dark. It was darker. It's a darker and grittier story. Sure, it really sure. is. And uh, that also, you know, you want to pick things apart. Like, you know, he wasn't carried out of an opera house. And anyway, that wasn't Bayreuth where they were carrying him out. That didn't look like Bayreuth. And right. That May Ball didn't take place. But that's funny because the May Ball in that movie was presented as a big romantic highlight. Yeah, right? yeah. In reality, uh, Jane spent most of that evening trying to find some way that she was going to get back to St. Albans, where it was her home, without driving with Stephen because he was such an awful driver. She was scared yeah. to death driving over to Cambridge. She was trying to find it. Back, so, so it wasn't that was really such, but there wasn't really a romance yet at that time. <laughs> oh, you don't, you don't blame the movie makers for doing that though, because it was just beautiful, it was wonderful. And Stephen did say that watching Eddie Redmayne, he said it was, I thought I was watching myself. That's what he said. Ah, so, that's that's lovely. That's yeah. a nice thing to say. Why well, he's a very talented man, Eddie. Yeah. So, oh my, yes, yeah, I think so. So let's let's now uh, go to the ancient times. You 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 did uh, Stephen Hawking. You did T. Van Bryan, and then uh, did you do Pythagoras last uh, when you wrote about Pythagoras, or or did you do it before? Yeah, T. Van Bryan? about two thousand five and yeah. Kepler, I think two thousand two thousand one two thousand. Right. I guess I wrote Lost Science after that. Um, mm, right. And. Lost Science was a frustrating book because I think every one of the people I wrote about in that deserved a whole book. <laughs> but anyway, yes, that came later. But uh, um, yeah. But then how did you get interested in Pythagoras? I mean, how, how did you go back to, to the beginning of, of enthusiasm for math and science, basically? I mean, there was well, interest think, in it before, yeah. but this was, a, this was a fire that was lit, clearly. Well, I think really it was through the uh, interest in, in, uh, in Kepler. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking back from that, and and uh, the chapter on Kepler in my Pythagoras book, I think, is one of the best I've ever written on anything yeah, and mm-hmm. on Kepler, <laughs> yeah. Pythagoras book. But uh, but that was an interesting book to write because nothing is known about Pythagoras. Yeah, you know, some of them, 
soft science. Uh, nothing is though. That's where you usually hear the Pythagoreans describe an ancient sect about which almost nothing is known. And that's exactly right. I mean, we don't know. Um, if you think about one of the major sources is uh, Dachiarchus. Fine, major sources. He lived at the time of Aristotle. This is yeah. centuries later. You know, um, we don't know. And uh, so the way I wrote the book really was to explain the legends, how much they might be true. Uh, sometimes they make sense based on other people's comments and so on. Sometimes they make no sense. Mm -hmm. So you, you begin to kind of hone out what you can ex accept and what you can't. Yeah. But everything, everything you read is, it was said, it has been said. It was written. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, one of the major sources on the uh, on the Pythagoreans in in the next century after Pythagoras had died, um, you know, oh, he wrote a book. Great, oh, he wrote a book. Well, we have fragments of that book. Fragments, not pieces of that book. What other people wrote about what was in that book. Right. That's the kind of fragments we have. Um, we know a lot about uh, Pythagoras through Plato. Mm -hmm. Plato got everything he knew through Archytas, who was an, a Pythagorean in Tarentum in southern Italy, um, but was not a contemporary of Pythagoras. He right. did his lifetime overlap. Um, there seemed to have been. Now, the Pythagoreans were a very, very secret group. They, I mean, they, they ruled, they were powerful in Crotonia in southern Italy. But what they believed, what they taught, the way they lived themselves, very secret. It's partly their own fault that we don't know anything about them. Right. And, um, but there, evidently, it is thought, <laughs> were um, a number of what were called memory books, which were written after that Pythagorean uh, community and other local communities. They were dispersed because they were sort of persecuted. They lost their power. They were dispersed. I had to kind of go underground. And many of them wrote what they call memory books to pass on down through their families. Now, that's what we hear. Do these memory books exist? No. Do we have any quotes from them? No. All we know is that there were some that claimed to be memory books. Later, um, may have been forgeries, may have been fiction. Uh, the Romans loved to write fiction about Roman authors love to write fictional stories really about Pythagoras. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do we know? So I, I you know, you're able to um, pinpoint that amazing discovery, which we'll, we'll come to that in a minute, but, but my main, the main thrust of my book was to follow that idea mm -hmm. down through the centuries to the present. Right. And the way it has influenced science ever since, um, the way it's um, been reinterpreted by generation after generation, the, you know, how Pythagoras is viewed and uh, the way it comes down to us today. And it's still around. I mean, uh, it's uh, when we uh, send out signals into space to see whether there are any aliens that not understand, we, we send out the Pythagorean theorem. Mm -hmm. We don't even know whether Pythagoras invented that, but we right, send right, it out. Right. It's a basic piece of logic <laughs> that you think if they're intelligent people, they will have discovered that too mm -hmm. because it's so basic and they'll recognize it and so when we still you know we do that and we talk about a perfect 10 that's a Pythagorean idea 10 is the perfect right. number and um, 
But their great contribution came when they were, and this, this I think we know about them. We don't know whether this was Pythagoras or his followers, or but there were people about that time right. with him. And they were experimenting with string lengths from a lyre, you know, a harp, a lyre, mm-hmm. and uh, questioning why certain combinations of string lengths produced music that was pleasing to the human ear and beautiful, and others did not. Mm-hmm. And they discovered that the link between string lengths and human ears was not something accidental or arbitrary, and that the, the ratios, the mathematical ratios that underlie musical harmony are simple in a marvelous way. And they concluded in a sort of a flash of brilliant understanding, this was their conclusion, that there's pattern and order underlying the uh, all the confusion and complication of nature. Mm-hmm. And it's accessible to us through numbers. Mm-hmm. The universe is rational. That was the discovery. The universe is rational. And we have gone with that assumption ever since. We don't know that the universe is rational, but we've gone with that assumption. Right. And taken us to the edges of space and time. It's taken us, but uh, as Arthur Kessler wrote, um, it's, been a, it's been a both positive thing and a negative thing. Positive in that it has taken us where it's taken us. Negative perhaps in that it, um, looking at the universe that way may put a numerical straitjacket on our knowledge uh-huh. where we are unwilling to explore beyond what seems logical and numerical and quantifiable Mm-hmm. And he thinks of particular of values, human values, is something that can't be done that way. But uh, you know, there there could be an enormous amount of reality out there that is beyond numbers, and that we don't know, thanks to the Pythagoreans, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, I think uh, that's their legacy. That's the legacy. And that's what the legacy that Kepler, that Copernicus followed. Copernicus was a Pythagorean, right? I mean, you know, and and Kepler and Newton, and to the present, you know, it's this. Uh, Belief in a rational universe. It's an assumption. And uh, you mentioned uh, Plato, and and there are stories of Plato going around looking for those books, uh, uh, Pythagorean books, and that's maybe 150 years after um, Pythagoras, something like that. And so books must have existed then because he went around, yeah, Mm -hmm. whatever the time, yeah, something like that. He was looking for for, uh, some of the groups of Pythagoreans. Oh, the Pythagoreans, yes, yes. Not not, not written by Pythagoras, but but the books that you, the memory books and so on. He he was looking for them. I don't know that he was looking for books so much. He was looking for... uh, for people, for those communities, find out what they believed, what they thought, right. what their own. So it's it's very, very, yes, you just try to write a book like that, and you realize, no, I can't really say that. I can say what people thought. I can say this. I can say what seems logical. Some of the things that they say that Pythagoras taught originally um, tend to be credible because they are not right in the spirit of that time. Right. The idea that uh, rulers should never consider themselves superior to the people they rule. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not something that you find in the ancient world that much. Mm-hmm. Um, women women were encouraged to argue with their husbands. But if they won the argument, they were not con- to consider that that made their husbands subject to them. <laughs> well, there is an interesting uh, thing about Pythagoras teaching women, right? And that's certainly against yeah. the culture. 
And um, what's the evidence for that? There's not a lot, but there is, uh, I think, a, a list of Pythagorean uh, thinkers from about 800 years later. And on the list, there's like 34 women out of the 200 and some. So it's like 17% or something, a very high number for that time. I yeah, think. we just really don't know how much that mm-hmm. that's, that's true. And I love the one teaching that's supposed to be from him. Um, strive to become what you wish to seem to be. <laughs> and that's rather healthy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and run, run the race of life and knowledge. Not like you're trying to beat your opponent, but just to make it to the goal as well as you can. And that was Pythagorean. And uh, and when he chose his students, evidently he uh, he chose his his students not originally because they were so brilliant or because their their minds, but because of a certain gentleness of spirit, a certain love, the ability to remain silent. And after he had satisfied himself on those criteria, then he began to judged whatever's the second tier after they'd passed that right. on how good how how well they could remember what they were taught how quickly they could assimilate knowledge mm-hmm. um and uh, you know you spend intelligence but the first judgment was not on that it was yeah. you know it's very, very interesting and uh but then you have these crazy stories like the Thagras would not they were vegetarians maybe they were maybe they weren't he did he did advise athletes to eat meat, but they always avoided beans. Yeah. Beans. beans. There's a lot of beans. <laughs> yeah, one of the said that, that Pythagoras actually lost his life because he would not uh, escape across a bean field for fear of tra- trampling the beans. And, yeah. uh, you know, that sounds like a joke. Life. Sounds like a joke <laughs> to me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of those stories, there's a story about, about him seeing a dog being uh, beaten and, and, uh, and then saying, oh, don't beat him because that's an old friend of mine. You know, that was an attempt to make fun of his idea about metempsychosis, you know, about, about reincarnation. Yeah, that may have been making fun of him. It was, may have been, um, that story, is, it goes both ways because uh, since he believed in sort of kinship of all being, unity of right. all being, that didn't actually have had to be in a dog, a person he knew it could have been anybody in the world. And right. That was the they thought that, but yeah, they thought that, but they, but the, the, the story of it is kind of like, uh, who would say that about a dog being, everybody beats their dogs, you know, that, that, that yeah, that's you, you can tell that that's, that's the kind of, you know, uh, yep. like, like clouds, right. like clouds by Aristophanes about Socrates, you know, they, there's a certain amount of joking that has to be done about these guys because how yeah, else right. are you going to deal with them? <laughs> yes, there's a lot of that really. There's a lot of that. And, uh, uh, but I love the mathematics. I mean, the, the idea that, um, the well, the um, the square of four is sixteen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. What is the triangle of four? Right. <laughs> and yes, it is. It's it's ten. Yeah. <laughs> make your little triangle. It's ten. And to make that triangle, you know, four pebbles. They work with pebbles. Four pebbles, then three pebbles, then two pebbles, then one. That's ten pebbles. And anyway, you tilt that triangle. It's always going to be that same. Thing. That was called the Tetractus. That was one of their fam- the famous figures. Um, now, that's not a Pythagorean triangle like we usually think of that. This right. is the Tetractus. And, uh, but I think that's fascinating. Who thinks of the triangle of four, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, it's based on, because the, the, uh, 
the musical ratios are, are involved in numbers one, two, three, and four, and they add up to ten. Mm-hmm. And so ten was the perfect number. Now I use that as an example of a way in which they took what was a very profound realization about reality, about the universe and the underlying pattern and all that, and then tried to work it out on in their own way at their level of understanding, and it, it ended up being well, it, it reminded me of the way some of the early, earliest Christians, um, after you know being maybe Christ's disciples, then tried to work that out in the time and place. And, right. And it's, it's you know it's it's a big jump, and it doesn't always always work. And uh, no, we we always uh, carry with us our personalities, and and we have to try to fit into our personalities, and it's always a, a, a very problematic. <laughs> so yes, that's right. And working out but I'd also think, you know, one of the things that I dwelt on in that book was that the Pythagorean triangle, what we usually think of as the mm-hmm. the right triangle and the hypotenuse, the square on the hypotenuse right. equals some of the squares on the other two sides, that that may very well have not come from Pythagoras because it was known in Mesopotamia a thousand years before. Before that, yeah. Um, we don't know. You might have originated in his culture because things were lost. You know, you didn't necessarily mean that that was. It didn't necessarily mean that that would have been remembered. Right. But um, he gets credit for that. Yeah. It, it uh, does, and I, I think uh, my guess or my understanding of what it would be that that set it off would be that he saw that was something that could be proved. He, he, mm-hmm. Somebody he else knew this, but they they just used it for practical reasons. And then he thought, well, that, that, could, that, that can be that, proved. Yeah. And, and, and but, that, that's uh, a big change. Yeah. If you look at some of the um, examples in Mesopotamia um, very early, it's pretty clear they actually understood the meaning of it and the, the proof right. of it. Um, and, uh, but, but that was then the Pythagoreans, of course, into a tremendous problem mm-hmm. when they discovered that, uh, Discovery of commensurability, incommensurability. Right. In fact, yeah, that that you start figuring that, and you suddenly get yourself into what we call irrational numbers. Square root of two. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, not the yeah, the square root of well, if you had sides like three and three, and you add that up, nine and nine. I mean, that's the squares, and then that makes eighteen for the hypotenuse. Okay, you got eighteen is this, but what we have to figure out the square root of eighteen. Right. I mean, it doesn't exist in whole numbers. It doesn't exist in fractions. If you try to figure it out as a decimal um, number, you have an infinite number of decimals. Now, that's enough for a crisis of faith for a Pythagorean. It's strange what will, what will uh, provoke a crisis of faith, but among the Pythagoreans, that was, uh, it's, it's often written that, really, that, that, was, uh, that was a big problem. Hey, the square root of two is not a real number. Uh, you know, yeah. square root of 18. But it does seem. So we say, yeah, yeah, we say that they came to some kind of silly, you know, things with their pebbles and all that. But um, they did in the next century now. And again, we don't know how much was from Pythagoras, how much was from, but it was from Pythagoreans. Mm-hmm. They came to the conclusion that the Earth moved, that the Earth did, that they, all the planets and the sun and the moon all orbit around the central fire. Right. And the moon reflects the light of the central fire. The earth is a sphere. Now, that was way ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. But then you want Pythagorean, what we say, craziness. Ten was the perfect number. There had to be ten bodies. <laughs> <rotating around it. laughs> 
Oh, they, they created something called the counter-Earth, which yeah. we can never see from Earth. <laughs> okay. All the ideas um, that seem like they would be beautiful if that's the way it was, you know, instead of just yeah, trying to figure it out. Right. But the, it, I, my analogy for that is it's like the, 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 the early Greek philosophers um, are like the first amphibians. You know, when you walk out of the water, you're still wet. Um, you haven't dried off yet. And so, you know, they, 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 they're coming out of this milieu where everything is not done by reason, and suddenly they start using reason. But there's still a lot of water they're dripping down from, from uh, what you they're saying. You think they were still dripping? You think maybe we're still dripping? <laughs> <laughs> that was just wonderful. That was a great way to find out about your work and to all the ideas that have gone through your head. Um, and thanks so much for clarifying so many of them for the rest of us. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.